Hello and greetings once again, everyone. Laszlo Montgomery here with part four of our little overview of the Qing Dynasty, the last imperial dynasty of China. We're going to look at the history up to about 1850, 1853 or so. This is when Hongxiu Chen, the self-styled younger brother of Jesus Christ and his Taiping rebel army, take control of the southern capital of Nanjing. So today we're going to look at the half-century from the time the Qianlong Emperor finally died in 1799 until March 19, 1853, when Hong Xiuquan marches into Nanjing victorious and sets up his capital. Then the Taiping Rebellion really explodes, but that's all for the next episode when we do Part 5. The Qianlong era, longest in imperial Chinese history, ended in 1799. And just as a new nation called the USA was struggling to begin its own history as a country, Qing Dynasty China was just getting ready to suffer through a very bad 50 years. 1800 to 1850 is a half century most Chinese would like to just as soon forget. Honestly, you don't have to dig too deep into Chinese cyberspace these days to peruse the various forums, microblogs, and other social networking sites to discover this 50-year period is still alive and well in the psyche of many Chinese. I've read more than a few historical allusions to this period when discussing or reading about current events in China. The whole matter of foreigners pushing Chinese around and disrespecting them all had its roots during this time. This is where it all began. This half-century we will look at today. Even today, when there's any public groundswell in China, where the government is perceived to be kowtowing to the Western powers, you'll see the forums and bulletin boards in China awash with allusions to this time a century and a half ago. The Qianlong Emperor dies, and we get his uh, 15th son next, the Jiaqing Emperor. As I mentioned last time, the Jiaqing Emperor was handed a country that was hardly in the good shape it was when his father began his reign. He reigned from 1796 to 1821, though, as I mentioned, during the first three years on the throne, his retired father continued to call the shots till he died in 1799. A good quarter century of decay and waste had passed, and by the time the Jiaqing Emperor got to sit on the throne, finally, China wasn't in good shape. And for sure, the imperial government was hardly mentally prepared to deal with the cataclysmic events about to unfold. When the Jiaqing Emperor took over, he had to deal with the White Lotus Rebellion that was still raging. The Chuanchu Bailian Jiao Qi Yi. It started during the last years of Qianlong in 1796. It was a rebellion led by the White Lotus Society, one of the many latent secret societies all over China that rose up in protest against unfair taxation and general anti-Manchu sentiment, not to mention the call to restore the Ming. It started out in the impoverished, harsh, mountainous area where Sichuan, Hubei, and Shanxi all conjoin. It spread fast because that anti-Manchu feeling wasn't terribly hard to find wherever you went. Initially, the efforts to put down the rebellion was led by good old He Shen. Remember him? Qianlong's Rasputin? His lame efforts to deal with the situation didn't work. But after the Jiaqing Emperor gets into power, he makes fast work of He Shen and then goes on to adequately equip and support the Qing army to the extent that they were able to quash the whole thing in 1804. The death toll directly and indirectly related to this rebellion was about 16 million people, or about the entire population of the Netherlands, to 
put that in perspective a little. It's never the same after this for the Qing. If you had to point your finger at just about the point where you might think the mandate of heaven, the Tianming, was lost, this would be my pick. The jackals and hyenas begin to circle from a distance starting right about now. Amongst the Chinese themselves, they had to have gotten a sense from the White Lotus Rebellion that the government wasn't at the top of its game, you know, taking so long to put it down and allowing for so much devastation. So if you were a hothead, anti-Manchu, pro-Ming restoration type, you had to have had a sense that your day in the sun was coming. In addition to the White Lotus Rebellion, the Jia Qing Emperor also inherited a bunch of uprisings going on in the Hunan-Guizhou area, mostly Hunan. Uh, long story short, the Miao were minority people, and sometimes Miao is used as a generic term for a variety of ethnic tribes who have been living in some of the roughest, most inhospitable terrain in the mountains of southwest China for who knows how long. With the population passing 300 million, the Han Chinese needed some elbow room, so they started to spread out, and when they started moving into these lands that were traditionally non-Han and inhabited by various aboriginal tribal people, well, conflict ensued, and just as the British were about to whack China with the superior military means at their disposal, so the Qing and the Ming before them would go in and brutally suppress these Miao and other ethnic minorities who might rise up. So, no love lost back then between these ethnic minorities and the Han, or in this case, the Manchu invader. This rebellion was put down in 1806, two years after the White Lotus Rebellion. In fact, it was because the Qing were so preoccupied putting this Miao rebellion down that they took their eye off the White Lotus and allowed the whole thing to flare up like it did. So the Jia Qing Emperor has his hands full, and as I mentioned, his father didn't leave him the best tools to deal with the problems. His biggest problem, and he didn't know it yet, concerned Papaver Somniferum, or the Opium Poppy. As we saw in the last episode during the Qianlong period, opium smoking on a widespread scale starts to rear its ugly head. He didn't do too much about it, and it fell to the Jia Qing Emperor to figure out a solution to this vexing problem. Two unsuccessful efforts in 1800 and 1813 didn't work much better than, you know, some of the old ways we use today to keep crystal meth off the streets. Where there's a market, there will always be suppliers. Now, I'm not going to get into too many details concerning the Opium War. If you want to refresh your memory, you can go check out the Opium War podcast episode of July 13th, 2010. That would be show number CHP006. There's no way to discuss the period of 1800 to 1850 without discussing the whole matter of opium and the events that led up to the war and the Treaty of Nanjing in 1842. Starting from about the Jia Qing Emperor on forward, you have a cake baking in the oven, so to speak, with the following ingredients. Anti-foreign nationalism, rising anti-Manchu sentiment, opium addiction spreading to the extent that society starts to crack, there are rebellions that the Qing military is seemingly impotent to deal with. There's a crisis with the copper-silver coinage exchange rate. And last but not least, you have foreign invasions led by Great Britain that were fueled by what else but tea and the usual laundry list of Chinese products that have been hot items for centuries, going back to the time of Julius Caesar. 
The Jiaqing Emperor was pretty much spared the indignity of his successor, the Daoguang Emperor. Because of the Napoleonic Wars going on in Europe, Britain and France were sort of too preoccupied to play rough with China and getting their way with increasing trade and opening up new ports. But once Napoleon meets his Waterloo in 1815, all eyes turn to China. And that's really when the tsunami, so to speak, is poised to hit China and culminates in the humiliating Treaty of Nanjing in 1842. Japan was still in total isolation during this time, the Tokugawa period, so Sino-Japanese relations were very peaceful during this during the time of the Jiaqing Emperor. The objective of selling opium in China wasn't done to create market share and sell it for the sake of profitability. It was used as something to substitute the payment of silver for all the tea and other cargo being laden onto Western vessels. By 1825, the Daoguang Emperor is on the throne and he's made aware of the dire situation in China regarding silver that is exiting the country due to this imbalance in trade. But another byproduct of this trade imbalance was that with silver becoming more scarce, the all-important exchange rate between copper cash and silver got all out of whack. Now this is all explained in the Opium War podcast, if you want to go back and suffer through that one again. Uh, During Qianlong's time, the rate was 1,000 copper cash to one silver tail ounce. By the time of Jia Qing, it was 1,500 to one. Now, in 1825, the Daoguang Emperor is told it's 2,700 to one. Since all taxes were paid to the state and silver, even by the peasants, this was going to cause massive peasant unrest, and we all know what happens when that happens. So now there was this urgency. Opium came to China packed in chests. Chests were the unit of measure in bulk sales. Each chest would have 40 balls of opium packed inside. Each ball was about three pounds or so of refined opium extract. It was all packed carefully inside poppy leaves, and a single chest weighed anywhere between 130 to 160 pounds. Now, the East India Company themselves, they didn't get their hands directly tainted with a business that everyone acknowledged was immoral. Instead, the East India Company would issue licenses to companies who had their own private vessels, and these were the guys who were engaged in the nuts and bolts of the opium trade. The so-called country traders would pick the opium up in India and sail to Canton, where the cargo would be discharged and sold through the Canton system. And these captains of these opium vessels were paid in silver by the Chinese Kohongs. These country traders then deposited the silver with agents of the East India Company, who would thereupon issue them a letter of credit to the captain of the vessel, and that's how it all basically worked. Huge profits every step of the way, even in China, all along the supply chain from the Kohong to the actual addict, who was the basically the only one who lost on the transaction. And a lot of people were getting high. Opium dens started to become more commonplace. For a bit of copper cash, a man could go enjoy a nice pipe full of opium mixed with tobacco. And it was a vice that was practiced by more than the down-and-out Chinese looking to forget their troubles. Eunuchs and palace elites, social elites, women of wealthy households living in their own private hells, they all, too, were just as susceptible to the temptations uh, that this powerful narcotic offered. 
everyone knew this was a bad vice, and there were plenty of Protestant missionaries all over southern China by this time, and they too were vociferous about stamping out this scourge. Those of you who enjoyed the Deadwood series on HBO might remember Mrs. Garrett and her laudanum addiction. Laudanum was a opium mixed with alcohol, another way to consume it, and also quite addictive. McCartney in 1793, Amherst in 1816, 1817, and Lord Napier in 1834. Three attempts to knock on the door and force their way in, all three times rebuffed. And as we know, it all culminated in the Opium War, which again, I welcome you to listen to that earlier podcast, rather than having me rehash that all here. I recount the whole thing, including, of course, the great Chinese hero, Lin Zexu, who made history in Hu Men in 1839. So if you don't mind, we're going to hit the fast-forward button to 1842. The Qing suffer a humiliating and disastrous defeat, and now they are exposed for what they are. The Treaty of Nanjing is forced on the Daoguang Emperor, and for that whole Han collective ethos about getting rid of these Manchu rulers and restoring the Ming, or restoring a Han Emperor, I guess it was convenient to want to restore the Ming rather than overthrow the Manchus and create a whole new dynasty. So this this smell gets into the air. And the flames of anti-foreign nationalism really get going right about this point. They were already on a very slow boil to begin with, but once it was learned the extent of what the Qing were forced to give up, it didn't sit very well with the people. This was pretty much the first time where China went head-to-head against Great Britain or any Western power, and the ending wasn't a happy one. China had been conquered before. Mongols, Turks, Manchus, and even these mountain tribesmen had humbled dynasties or seized the mandate of heaven themselves. But this was different. These were white people from far away, not Asians from close by. And now China was busted wide open. So in the 1840s and 50s, it's open season. The golden age of the Protestant missionaries in China was blasting off. And we'll dedicate some space in a future podcast series to the stories of the great missionaries who went to China in the mid-19th and early 20th centuries. I remember uh, Ingrid Bergman from the immortal 1958 Hollywood epic, Inn of the Sixth Happiness. That was my earliest memory of the missionaries in China. I haven't seen that film in 20 or 30 years or more, and I bet it would be painful for me to watch now. Robert Dunnott in his last role is the Mandarin Yang Chung, who converts to Christianity in the end. Robert Dunnott, of course, one of the many Caucasians to play Chinese roles in Hollywood. If you're wondering about the Jesuits, they really never made a comeback after the Kangxi Emperor turned against them. Things just sort of petered out, and then, of course, the Jesuits were essentially shut down altogether in 1773. So now the Protestants pick up the pieces and go on to build a brave new world in China. Anyways, I can't find the words to explain how suddenly things began to change in China, especially at the new treaty port areas. Now you have Shanghai starting to emerge. Shanghai doesn't have the long history like Xi'an, Beijing, Luoyang, Zhengzhou, Nanjing, Hangzhou, Suzhou. Now, in the mid-19th century, right after the First Opium War, Shanghai starts to become Shanghai. And from here on out, all the way to the present day, you'll constantly hear about Shanghai as so much history happens in that amazing city from here on out. 
There were no shortages of incidents involving foreigners outraging the local populace with unpredictable outcomes. Back in 1784 and again in 1834, there were two incidents involving a British vessel, the Lady Hughes, and an American vessel, the Emily. To make a long story short, both ships were involved in accidents where some Chinese locals were accidentally killed. Now, the incidents were both resolved, but not before a whole lot of smoke was blown on both sides, and the Westerners made it clear that the Qing government better listen to them or else. But in the end, when cooler heads prevailed, this brush fire was stamped out. But it was stuff like this. It happened all the time. This was the first time East is mixing with West on this kind of mass scale. This isn't like you know, Marco Polo during the Yuan Dynasty, eh, onesies and twosies of Europeans here and there. See, now there's a lot of Western people all over China. Missionaries, traders, fortune seekers, teachers, and, you know, just the plain old curious hoping to study and learn. But both sides were totally unfamiliar with each other's culture and probably equally outraged at each other's behavior. And it didn't take long for word to spread amongst the Chinese Lao Bai Xing to... Watch out for these foreigners. They always have to get their way and demanded special treatment. So this anti-foreign feeling, that feeling of resentment, it blended nicely with the always-present anti-Manchu feeling that's been percolating since 1644. This anti-foreign nationalism really starts to spread out, and a lot of sparks fly, but nothing big, nothing big, that is, until the Taiping Rebellion. So now the Daoguang Emperor, he's a dare in the headlights, and he has to quickly figure out where to go from here. He was really the wrong man at the wrong time. He was a well-meaning emperor and did things like wear patched, worn-out garments to encourage frugality in his subjects, but nothing worked very well. During the Daoguang Emperor's time, tea plants were carried off from China to India for the first time, and that was how the whole Indian tea industry got its start. The Communist Manifesto, published in 1848, also during the reign of the Daoguang Emperor, that, of course, will figure heavily on Chinese history beginning in 1921. Karl Marx had quite a lot to say about China during this time. So the Daoguang Emperor, first he has to deal with Muslims rebelling in Xinjiang. He inherited this terrible drug problem that was growing like crazy right before his eyes. The British, French, Dutch... Americans, everyone was pounding on the door. He had to deal with the Opium War and its aftermath, and now he sits in the Imperial Palace, powerless to do anything in the face of so many problems all hitting him at the same time. So let's look at the background of Hong Xiuquan and the background that led up to the Taiping Rebellion. I have about 25 sources that I use to do the research for these podcast shows. I also use the internet, but mostly everything I need is in these volumes. For the Taiping Rebellion, I'm primarily using God's Chinese Son by the great Jonathan D. Spence. I guess I would call him one of the greatest living scholars and lecturers of China. If you want a great account of the Taiping Rebellion, read that book. Anything by Jonathan Spence. He delivers always. Also, might I suggest uh, check out Melvin Bragg's BBC In Our Time episode covering the Taiping Rebellion. That was the show from February 23rd, 2011. There's a link to In Our Time on my website. Four brilliant minds all sit together and discuss the rebellion from Hong's beginnings until the bitter end in 1864 after 
20 million people have perished, I encourage you to give that one a listen. Half the stuff Melvin Bragg discusses is way over my head, and I admit I can't always follow what they discuss, but listening to him and some of the professors he invites onto the show, eh, just can't get enough of that. Anyway, so now the Ching is in a seemingly hopeless situation. Drugs, not enough revenue being raised, the tax system is in shambles, and of course the foreigners are doing their thing to put all kinds of pressures on the established ways. Society starts to break down right at the grassroots level. No government is in charge to look out for the faraway places because there's not enough money to fund an army to cover the nooks and crannies of the empire. This is why you have these secret societies emerging everywhere and guilds or any kind of association. The government wasn't going to look after you, so people sought safety in these societies. And the triads also began during this time. That's another podcast. So China is about to get ripped apart in one of the bloodiest and most tumultuous uprisings in history. What we'll see later on, instead of the foreign powers tearing down the Qing dynasty, they'll be propping them up and will be called in to assist the Qing in putting down the Taiping rebels. So where did this all start? It all began with a five and a half foot tall, handsome guy of Hakka descent born in 1814. I mentioned the Hakka people, or the Kujiaren, in a much earlier podcast. They are originally from the north, or central part of China, and migrated in massive numbers around 800 years ago during the Jin Dynasty to the south in Guangdong, Fujian, Jiangxi, and Guangxi. The Hakkas kept their own language, customs, and man, did these guys ever stick together. They were Chinese, yet they were sort of outsiders, being internal migrants and all, the guy destined to lead the Taiping Rebellion who created the Taiping Tianguo was Hong Xiuquan, and he was from a Hakka background and was born in 1814, like I said, just outside of uh, Guangzhou. Now, there's information overload about the life of Hong Xiuquan. We might circle back another day and look at specific aspects of the Taiping Rebellion. For now, let's just get an overview of who he was, and how he came to proclaim himself God's second son and the younger brother of Jesus. He was four times unlucky, failing the extremely difficult civil service exams. He came from a rather poor background, so obviously his family stood to benefit immensely if he succeeded and entered the government bureaucracy. So Guan Fa I've said that before, if you enter the government, you get rich. So failing for the fourth time like he did in 1843 was more than just a personal failure. He was also failing his family and their fortunes as well. In 1836, during his third attempt at the exam, he was passed a book or pamphlet written by a very interesting gent named Liang Afa, or just Liang Fa. He was the first Chinese Protestant minister. In fact, he was baptized by Robert Morrison himself, who we'll look at another day, Morrison was credited with being the very first Protestant missionary to preach in China. The title of this very influential work, written or more likely translated by Liang Afa, was called Good Words for Exhorting the Age. It's also called Good Works Exhorting Mankind. Now, to exhort means to give urgent advice. Now, Hong Xiuquan was given this book in 1833 and possessed it, but 
did not have any immediate impact on him. It's said as a result of the trauma of failing his third time in 1836, Hong fell into a delirium for 40 days brought on by a most likely a nervous breakdown. He apparently suffered all kinds of delusions and visions, and his family thought he was going crazy or might have been possessed by demons. But he survived this episode, and it wasn't until years later, in 1843, after he finally read Liang Afa's work, that he was able to fully understand the meaning behind all these visions he had. Everything was clear to him now, and at once he began to preach and ponder his destiny. He has now gone back and studied Liang Afa's good work for exhorting mankind, and in reading these translations of scripture and the Lord's teachings, Hong comes to the conclusion that he's God's son, that he's Jesus' younger brother. Or as I mentioned, as Jonathan D. Spence used for the title of his great book, He's God's Chinese Son. As he develops his creed, he will lead his followers and get them to completely reject Confucianist beliefs, Buddhism, and all the Taoist and Chinese folk religions as well. His first two converts were his cousin, Hongren Gan, and another, Feng Yunshan. This was in 1843. These three served as the core of the Taiping Tianguo, or the Heavenly Kingdom of Great Peace. Twenty million people, as I said, are going to lose their life over the next decade or so in this Great Peace Hong and his people preached in and around Guangdong and Guangxi, mostly amongst the Hakkas and the disaffected peasants who were not doing well in the 1840s. They first went out together in 1844 and preached in Guangxi. Famines, natural disasters, and the usual oppression brought on by taxes and corrupt officials made these socially discontented southerners flock to this new religion and secret society Hong was introducing. Now, it wasn't easy to walk into these villages and tell these people he was the son of God and they had to reject all their religions and everyone had to pool their wealth except this new God who was a Caucasian at that. It's not like thousands and thousands immediately joined him. It was a slow start. I think after Hong went back to Guangdong, he had converted maybe a hundred followers. He preached a radical form of egalitarianism, an abolishment of all kinds of vices. He called for equality between the sexes, shared valuables, land resources, and wealth. The sexes were segregated, and even the most intimate matters between husbands and wives was strictly controlled by Hong. He was aiming to control procreation until the establishment of the Heavenly Kingdom, or Tianguo. There was intense militancy that was also growing amongst these early converts. As the 1840s progressed, the tone of the religion Hong was preaching started to evolve into a lot of hate speech about you-know-who, the scapegoats for everything that was going wrong in China, the Manchus. Hong went back to Guangdong, but Feng Yunshan, he went on to a place called Thistle Mountain, Zijinshan, this area was mostly peopled by Hakkas who were involved in the charcoal business. And this is important because the work Feng does here for the next four to five years is crucial to the whole launch of the Taiping Rebellion. In 1846, Hong gets the chance to meet the early Southern Baptist Church missionary from Tennessee, Isaac Roberts. This period in Canton, or Guangzhou, studying under Reverend Roberts served as another brick in the wall for Hong's evolving theology. Once Hong started deviating from the orthodox Christianity taught to him by Roberts, the preacher would later distance himself. 
Once Holmes started trying to convince him that he was the son of God and brother of Jesus, Reverend Roberts just sort of took a walk. He wasn't going to join in on the belief that uh, Hong Xiuquan was the Messiah. Later, in 1847, Hong returns to Thistle Mountain to meet up with Feng Yunshan and to see how things were progressing up there. Hong, uh, in a famous story, is robbed en route, and everything's taken from him, and he had a brush with possible death, but he's spared and is convinced that this was God's hand personally sparing him. So he arrives finally at Thistle Mountain, is reunited with Fung, and there's already about a thousand converts. The tone of the movement and the ideology becomes more and more anti-Confucianist. He believed all this was bad, evil, and we'll see Hong's iconoclasm, how he does all kinds of terrible things to wreck those images and icons and symbols of everything he preached against. The religion Hong Xiaochuan preached, it was extremely puritanical, and he preached a very ascetic lifestyle. Private property is abolished. I mean, his converts didn't have much to begin with. And as I said, he was harsh with anyone engaging in the usual vices of alcohol, tobacco, opium, entertainment of various kinds. But surprise, surprise, all these restrictions on sex and these Demands to live simply and frugally. These didn't apply to Hong. He suffered from delusions of grandeur. And after a while, we'll see, he started being carried around in a sedan chair and loved to surround himself with opulence of any kind. And he dressed in these robes befitting an emperor rather than some religious leader. By the end of 1849 and early 1850, the Manchus are identified as the primary evil by Hong Xiaochen, and he calls for their defeat and to kick them out of China so that the paradise he is preaching can be achieved. Good thing the Daoguang Emperor dies in February of 1850. He is spared the horror of the Taiping Rebellion and being on duty when China sinks even further. He is succeeded by his eldest son, the Xianfeng Emperor, and it is during the 11-year reign of this emperor that the Infamous Empress Dowager Cixi makes her debut, but that's all for next time. The Xianfeng Emperor is going to bear witness and have his stamp on additional humiliations for China at the hands of the foreigners. The Treaty of Nanjing in 1842 wasn't the end of the embarrassment China faced having these unequal treaties forced on them. It was just merely the first one. The Xianfeng Emperor was, in a word, weak. He lacked good judgment, and the officials who surrounded him knew he was way out of his league at a time like this. No one had any faith that this was going to be the emperor who was going to lift China up by the bootstraps and get things back on a solid tack. Certainly not in the face of such foreign aggression. In 1849, word of the Taiping rebels and their efforts to organize down in the south reached the imperial court, so troops are sent down to investigate and to nip this one in the bud. So now the movement, led by Hong, has to begin fighting. So the first battles with government troops happens end of 1850, early 1851. By August and September of 1850, you could see the darkest, grayest thunderclouds starting to close in. Hong's closest and most trusted followers are preparing everyone for battle. On October 29th, after they decide they have to break away from their stronghold on Thistle Mountain, Hong Xiuquan sends out an order calling for the mobilization of everyone. So we can't actually say the 
Taiping Rebellion began right about here, but we can say this was the time it changed from a game of cat and mouse and hit and run with the Qing army to one of open confrontation. The movement converges on a village called Jintian, and they take a breather there. The Taiping rebels are becoming an army now, and efforts to organize are undertaken successfully, calling on the wisdom of the Zhou or the Rites of Zhou, as a sacred a text as you could ever find in China. This army rose up in late 1850 and early 1851. There were several battles against the Qing forces. Some they won, some they lost. It wasn't a great victory from a military standpoint, but what was important was that the ranks of the Taiping swelled immensely, with so many coming over to their side. And like before, most were Hakas who were joining because of the persecution they were suffering at the hands of officials and elites. Now, all this stuff going on, Chairman Mao, a hundred years later, was saying this rebellion was like a proto-communist uprising. And Mao very much was aware of the link and the similarities between the Taiping Rebellion and the Civil War of the 20th century. Now, on January 1st, 1851, this is Hong's 38th birthday, he was born on New Year's Day, he declares a new dynasty, the Taiping Tianguo, or Heavenly Kingdom of Great Peace. And he names himself the Tianwang, or Heavenly King. By August of 1851, the Taiping rebel army has been beaten back to the extent that they know they have to retreat or face annihilation. But before they leave Jintian, he issues his first recorded edict declaring the basic principles of the Taiping. First, obey the heavenly commandments. Second, distinguish men's quarters from women's quarters. Third, avoid causing even the slightest damage. Fourth, be public-minded and harmonious, and everyone should obey their leader's restraining hand. Fifth and last, unite your minds and combine your efforts, and do not, when going into battle, flee from the field. All moral, military, social, and political policies were always couched in this religious language. On September 24, 1851, after a rocky start, the Taiping army wins its first battle where a city is taken. This was at the Yong'an. They take the city, and Hong Xiuquan moves into the best digs in town that belonged to the magistrate who had fled. They immediately start setting Yong'an up as their base of operations. They own the town. Hong makes one grandiose pronouncement after another, and he even proposes a whole new typing calendar. Then he goes and issues all kinds of fancy titles for all his followers and for the heroes of the movement thus far. He really goes overboard with this, considering the size of the movement at the time. And there were only about 20,000 Taiping troops at Yong'an at the end of 1851. No rest for the weary. December 10th, 1851, Qing forces attack Yong'an and destroy a Taiping supply depot. Then they retreat back to Qing areas real quickly and... Hong and his followers remain in Yong'an till April 1852, using it as a kind of uh, Yen'an, like Mao did, to cool their heels and develop the hierarchy within the movement and work more on the ideology. There are plenty of examples, but I don't want to start reading them here. Again, if you're interested and want to read copious details of this time, read uh, Spence's book, God's Chinese Son. Hong considered there were seven brothers who formed the core of the Taiping movement, the topmost layer. First and most important of these seven brothers was the Lord Jesus Christ himself. 
followed by Christ's younger brother, Hong Xiuquan. Third was Yang Xiuqing, someone I haven't mentioned, but very important and the true military hero of the Taipings up to that time. Fourth was a Xiao Chao Gui, who, besides being a military guy, also served as the channel through which Jesus spoke. Fifth was Feng Yunshan, who I mentioned before was uh, the first one to organize the God worshippers. Uh, sixth was Wei Changhui, an early convert. And last was Shi Da Kai, uh, another Hakka who, like uh, Hong, was a failed civil service exam candidate. He brought a lot of converts and muscled Jin Tian when they were still based there before Yong An. On April 5th, 1852, the entire Taiping army departs Yong'an for the earthly paradise promised by Hong Xiuquan. By now, their numbers are about 40,000. Their first scuffle is in the beautiful city of Guilin. They besiege the city for 33 days, but they're unable to take it. Next up was Xingan and then Quanzhou, where Feng Yunshan is killed. Uh, 1852 ends with a siege of Changsha, ending without success. January 12, 1853, Wu Chang is taken by the Taiping Army, which was a major turning point. And on March 19, 1853, the ancient Ming capital of Nanjing is taken. And this becomes the capital of the Taiping Kingdom. And once they take Nanjing, Hong Xiuquan sort of becomes like, uh, not really, but sort of like a Howard Hughes and just sort of disappears. And from that point on, he only makes his pronouncements through his selected representatives. So you think it can't get any worse for the Qing dynasty, but actually it does. Although they face some major setbacks and deaths of key Taiping figures, the latter part of 1852 and all of 1853 saw the Taiping rebels really pick up steam, and the movement gets getting bigger and bigger. Now they're in Nanjing, a million strong and growing and setting themselves up as a legitimate government, and they're even considering a foreign policy and beginning to woo foreigners to their cause. And the Western powers at this time, they're sort of scratching their head, wondering, hey, which horse do I bet on? Do they bet on the dying but not yet dead uh, Qing, uh, they're a safe bet, considering the shape they were in. It would be a cinch for England, France, and America and others to call the shots and prop the Qing emperor up and sort of use him as a puppet. But on the other hand, these Taiping guys, well, they seem to be good Christians. Of course, they had a slightly warped version, uh, but at this stage, the word hadn't spread yet about the scope of the weirdness of the creed Hong had developed. Once the West figures out how strange this guy is, they shy away from him, and as I said, they put their chips on the Qing Emperor, and from that point on, they figure, eh, these guys are as good a puppet as any to get what they want. So amidst all this, a second major rebellion breaks out called the Nian Rebellion, but we're going to cover this and the rest of the Taiping Rebellion in the next episode. So, it's 1853 now, and we have the tragic Xianfeng Emperor on the throne, he reigns for a sad 11 years, from 1850 to 1861. The entirety of his reign is filled up, dealing with the Taiping and Nian rebellions. And it was this emperor who takes on a concubine, Lady Yehanara, who, upon the death of this Xianfeng emperor, seizes power and rules all the way into the 20th century as the evil empress dowager, Cixi Taiho. We'll look at her in the next podcast when we do the Qing Part 5. 
although she is worth an entire podcast episode uh, herself. Now, I've skipped over about a billion and a half details here. This is the 19th century, and it's very, very well documented. Better documented than any dynasty in Chinese history. So, in a 30 or 40 minute overview, we can only ride the horse and look at the flowers. We really are flying at treetop level here at high speed, but I just want to give you a general idea of how the whole thing developed and when. This is the 1850s. The American Civil War is a little more than a decade away. Chinese immigrants were flooding into the USA to seek their fortunes in the California gold rush. This is a topic for a future series of podcasts about these Chinese who came at the end of the 1840s. This was also the time of Bismarck and Louis-Philippe, the great British scientist Michael Faraday was at the peak of his productivity. There was also westward expansion in the United States. I mean, the world was changing very fast. And so, my friends, we're going to stop right here until the next time. Again, I encourage you to go download that In Our Time podcast covering the Taiping Rebellion. And that's it for now. Thanks once again for downloading this episode of the China History Podcast. On behalf of the ChinaHistoryPodcast.com, this is Laszlo Montgomery signing off as usual from the lovely little town of Claremont, California, home of the Cocoa Bakery next door to the Village Grill. Visit them, won't you, if you're ever in our fair and pleasant village. Take care, folks, and I hope you'll join us next week for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.